Here we are in Exodus chapter 3, a fascinating chapter early on inside of this absolutely incredible book. We are still in this conversation between Moses and God. He has seen this bush that is burning but is not consumed. He turns aside and God begins to speak with Moses. In our last passage, he calls Moses and Moses sort of steps back a little bit. Well, who am I that you would send me back to Egypt to do this with Pharaoh? And God promises his presence and power and provision to go ahead of Moses. And so God is calling Moses to be his man back in Egypt. God will send him back there to use him to free his people from slavery. In this next section of that conversation, God reveals himself to Moses in a way that becomes absolutely critical to our understanding of our identity as the people of God. It becomes critical to our understanding of how History unfolds. Now, that sounds like a a big claim, but this is a big moment. It's critical to our understanding of how history unfolds, and it's critical to our understanding of who God is, his very character, his very nature. In this passage of Scripture, God gives Moses his name, sort of. It's an interesting moment. It's an interesting word. Moses asks for the name of God, and God gives it to him. So God gives Moses his name, and then he gives Moses a summary of everything that's going to happen next, the way the rest of the book is actually going to unfold all the way to the entrance of the promised land. So the call of Moses includes the who, the person that he is called to follow. And the call of Moses even includes the how of the power of this great God who accomplished things that no one thought was possible. This is the God who is talking to Moses, who is talking to us now in this passage of Scripture. So here are a couple of the things that we're going to think through as we read through this part of the conversation. The first is this, the name of God. The name of God. Friends, what a moment this is in Scripture There is in this passage more than just a name. There is theology and there is history rolled into what God has to say about himself. The name of God, the name of the Lord, becomes part of the identity of God's people, both the children of Israel and the children of God now in the church of Jesus Christ. So as we listen to God's answer to what is your name, we're answering questions like who is this God? What will he do? What does this mean for you and me as people who belong to this God? So I think it's going to be good for us to talk about the name of God. And then we see in this passage again in a little bit more specific fashion, God saves his people to worship him. God is going to tell Moses what Moses is going to tell Pharaoh. So, okay, Moses, I told you you're going to go back to Pharaoh. We're going to do this. I'm going to be with you. We're going to free the people of Israel. This is what I want you to say to Pharaoh. This is how the conversation with Pharaoh is going to get started. But then God tells Moses that this isn't going to work until there's a power struggle. Pharaoh isn't going to want to do it. 
But through this power struggle, God's going to be shown as supreme. The name of the Lord will be above every other name of every other Egyptian god, and God will free his people. This notion of being freed to worship God is so critical to the book of Exodus that most of the second half of this book is devoted to that very idea. So God is going to save his people to worship him. So let's begin reading in this passage of Scripture. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, Well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Moses is full of questions. Who am I to go to Egypt and talk to Pharaoh? God's answer to that question you may remember is, well, I am the God who is going to be with you. That's who you are. You're the one who belongs to me. And Moses goes, well, okay, I've got another question. (laughs) What if I tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me, and they say, well, what's his name? What am I actually going to say? Now, it's interesting to reflect for a moment about the understanding of the people of Israel in Egypt as slaves of their God. They don't yet have the exodus to look back on. They don't yet have the plagues to reflect on. They don't yet have the Ten Commandments or the rest of the law of Moses. They don't yet have the prophets who are reminding them of the character of God and how they are supposed to live. What they have are the lives and the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here is this nation, Israel, who's grown in the land of Egypt. They have become slaves, and there's something inside of them that remembers this God and knows this God, but that's how they know him. The one who spoke to Abraham, the one who wrestled with Jacob, the one who saved Isaac. This is the God that we follow. So we've got this historical issue with the people of Israel. Who is this God? What is his name? What is this God like? And so much of what happens in the book of Exodus is not just God telling Moses, this is who I am. So much of what happens in Exodus is God showing his people through what he does, this is who I am. So God continues to reveal himself to his people. The only other person so far to this point in the history of the people of Israel who comes even close to asking or getting the name of God is Jacob, Israel, when he wrestles with God. But even then, he doesn't yet get the name of the Lord. So we have that context historically for the people of Israel. But then we also have this other context. They're in the land of Egypt. This is where Moses grew up. This is where Israel has been now for 400 years or more. And what they have lived in is inside of this culture that is just riddled with gods. 
We've got to remember in our culture that the way they lived in the land of Egypt and Rome and Greece and the Canaanite pagan cultures is very different than the culture that we live in. Their civic and family and business lives were like this with their religion. It was all the same thing. So this Egyptian pantheon, they had gods that belonged to everything. They had a god of the sun and of the moon and of the Nile and of the sand. They had gods that belonged to dung beetles and frogs and cats and snakes. And the Egyptians are builders and they're artists. So in every city of Egypt, wherever the the Israelites are, the walls are covered in images of these Egyptian gods. Their deeds and their mythology and their names. And so they've grown up around the names of all of these gods of Egypt and the kind of power that they claim to have. So it is a legitimate question for Moses to ask. We are full of the names of the gods of the pagan Egyptians. What if they ask me your name? Who is this God who claims to be more powerful than all of these other gods put together and can free them from slavery? Who is this God? What is your name? The text very simply says in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So this is an incredible phrase. This is an incredible moment in the history of the people of God, in the history of the revelation of Scripture. But just this very phrase is incredible. It's three words in Hebrew. I will not butcher those three words for you. It's a phrase of three words, it's actually two words. I am who or what I am. So it's just this repetition of two words, of one word twice and then one word in the middle. The vast majority of English translations take this to be I am who I am or I am what I am. But more and more recent scholarship says the way that word works, it's more than just sort of a present tense verb that I am. Many believe that it can better be translated as I will be what I will be. One Old Testament scholar said that word is a little bit like saying, or this phrase is a little bit like saying, I will forever be what I am, or I am what I forever will be. So we begin to get a feel for when God gives his name, it's not just my name is Joe. It is a name that is full of past, present, and future. It's as much a verb. It's as much about his very essence and existence. That is my name, God says. Now, I want to talk about this word a little bit so that we understand how this word for I am, say I am has sent me to you, how this word comes to us and how we understand this word and how it works. This is the place where we get the name of God, Yahweh. So the four letters in the Hebrew alphabet, the four consonants that make up that word for I am, come into the English and they look like Y-H-W-H, and so it's pronounced often Yahweh or Yahweh. 
Now, that's the name of God as it comes to us kind of straight out of the text here. There's some really interesting things happen with this name, with this word, um, as time moves on. Remember, Moses is standing on holy ground, and now Moses has actually received the name of the Lord himself. So throughout history, when, uh, when the Jews would read through Scripture or they would write through it and they'd speak through Scripture, they believed that speaking that name was too holy to say out loud. So they would substitute the name Yahweh with other words, and it's through that process that you and I get words like Adonai, So they would say Adonai in place of Yahweh when it shows up inside of Scripture. And again, those four consonants, they're they're so holy that through time as Scripture gets translated, the, the, um, the, the, uh, the vowel markers get put in between those words, Y-H, or those letters, Y-H-W-H, and it turns into Yeshua. And this is where we get, again, through translations in our language, the word Jehovah. So what comes out of this phrase becomes important to us about the name of God and about who he is. Something interesting happens in your Bibles. If you've been reading through scripture and you see sometimes this happen and you wonder what on earth this means, well, we're here to explain it to you this morning. In scripture, often when the word Lord is used of God, it's in all capital letters. If you look in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 3, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has has sent you. Lord is in all capital letters. So in your English translations, where Lord is in all capital letters, it is the name of God. It is Yahweh. So when God tells Abraham, I am who I am, say, I am has sent me to you. And then he says in verse 15, the Lord... The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent you, uh, right, has sent you to, to them. So he uses his name, the Lord. And then he uses the, uh, the Old Testament word, the rather generic word for deity or for God, Elohim. The Lord, Elohim, has sent you to them. So this is an incredible moment in our understanding of who God is. The I will be that I, what I will be. I will forever be who I am. And on and on and on. And we begin to get this vast and incredible notion of this God that is revealing himself to Moses and to us. And I want to think for a few minutes about what this means. Who this God is. What he is saying to you and me in this passage. The first thought is this. The great I am is a revelation of God's being and of his activity. It is a revelation of who God is and what God does. It's important for us to understand some of these things, so stick with me for a little while. God, the one true God, the only Lord, who exists truly, is the beginning and the end of all things. 
He is the creator of all that exists outside of himself, and he is the one who will wrap up all of history as we know it inside of his perfect and complete will and the eternal kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. This is this God who is talking to Moses. The beginning and the end of all things and the one who is the the I am at all points in time and space in history. We get another glimpse of this notion through the lens of Jesus Christ at the end of all things, so to speak, when John the Revelator stands before the exalted Jesus Christ on the day of the Lord. Revelation chapter one, verse eight. As Christ, the risen and exalted Christ, speaks to John, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, the name of the Lord is revealed to Moses, and then it is given to us again. The notion, the sense of what that means is given to us again when John the Revelator runs into Jesus Christ later on. So friends, this is important about who this God is. And here's how God is going to reveal himself through the book of Exodus to us. The one true God is the only essential self-existent being in all existence. I've joked with you before, every now and then, you're just gonna have to put up with philosopher Phil, so here we are. This is important stuff. The one true God is the only essential self-existent being in all existence existence. God, in his triune nature, in his omnipotence and omniscience, in his omnibenevolence, he has always existed. Before creation, he is. And he created all that is. And after our history is over, guess what? He is. He still is the great I am. Absolutely everything else is created by God and relies on God for its existence. Absolutely everything else. You, me, stars, starfish, galaxies, glowworms, angels, demons, Satan, all of them created by God and are under power-wise the great I am. And all of us are constantly dependent upon God for our existence. Here's how Paul talks about it in the book of Colossians, speaking of Jesus specifically. He says this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We take that seriously. We don't take that metaphorically. 
We don't mean to say, okay, the Greeks had Zeus and God's a little bit stronger than Zeus. That's not what we mean. We do not mean that in the pantheon of all the gods and idols that we can possibly imagine, ancient or modern, we look at it like a mountain range, but there's one mountain that's a little bit higher than all the rest, and that's the God that we worship. That's not who this God is. He is the only mountain in the mountain range. That's it. That's who this God is. But as God speaks of himself in these kinds of terms, I am. It's not just that. It's not just this conceptual reality of who this God truly is. That creator, omnipotent God says, I am also the one who walked with Abraham. I'm also the one who walked with Isaac and Jacob. I am the one who is now walking with you, Moses. I am the one who hears the cries of my people. I remember and I will act. The supreme creator God is also the God of our fathers and mothers in the faith. It is an astounding, almost incomprehensible thing that that great and incredible God would also be the God who wears flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and walks on this earth. God, the Holy Spirit, who now indwells his church right now. What an incredible God this is. God is involved in our history and in our lives. We are not left alone. Our lives are full of the presence, the glory, and the work of God. The God who created all things and is above all things is also the God who is with us. The God who is with us. This is something else important for the children of Israel to learn in the book of Exodus and for you and I to keep before our thoughts as we think of God. Our God is the creator and is beyond all creation. He's the creator and he is beyond all creation. So again, the Egyptian gods, every one of them tied to creation. The Greco-Roman gods, every one of them tied to some piece of creation. All of the false gods that the Canaanites worshipped in the worship in the promised land, all of their gods are tied to this creation. If you take time to even read some of the mythologies of some of these people, even creation itself, these gods are tied to the creation of the earth, the rising of the sun, the changing of the seasons, the rising and the dying, all these sorts of things. They're always intimately tied with creation itself and something we are learning about the God that exists, the God that we worship, is that he is entirely different from every other God, every other person worships. Entirely different. Oftentimes, the skeptics question about you know, the creation of the universe. You know, we go back and back and back and back. And we have this moment where God creates the universe, and then the skeptic thinks they got you. They say, well, okay, well, then who created God? What's interesting about that question is that question assumes the gods of the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians and the Babylonians, that they are actually not transcendent. They are actually not beyond creation. They themselves are also created and contingent beings. The question, who created God, belongs to the Egyptians. They have to answer that question. Moses doesn't. You and I don't. 
We don't worship a God who is tied to creation like this. He created it all, but he stands transcendent beyond all of it. This is the great I am the name of the Lord. So the name of God is above every other name. If you've been a Christian for a while or if you've read your Bible for a while, you're familiar with phraseology like that. And, you know, growing up as a kid inside of the church, you hear that stuff and you know it's true and it's right and it's good. But hopefully this morning we're coming to a deeper sense of what that means, that the name of God, the great I am, is above every other name. There is no other name that means I am the self-existent one. There just isn't. So that name and all that it means becomes critical to our understanding about ourselves as the children of God. God goes on to say as he speaks further with Moses, he says, this is my name forever. The more you come to terms with what we're talking about when God says, I am who I am, the language of forever makes more and more sense all the time. It hits us with a little bit more power. He doesn't say, this is my name this year, and I'm going to choose a different name next year. This is my name forever. This is who I am. And this is how I'm going to be remembered throughout all of the generations. This becomes so important. To Moses and Israel in the book of Exodus becomes so important to the way you and I live as followers of Jesus Christ. God says, you're going to remember my name generation after generation after generation. And so one of the things that God does is he institutes a pattern of life for his people, beginning with the Passover itself. You're going to remember this every single year because with a strong arm, I drew you out of Egypt. You are no longer slaves and I have made you free. You're gonna remember this every single year. God wants us to remember our history with God. So we don't just draw it back from memory and memorize a few verses, that is great, but we actually live out our memory with God. And so in the Old Testament, it's full of feasts and fasts and festivals and, and times of remembrance and pilgrimage to the temple and sacrifices to remember over and over and over who this God is. And this is how we train the next generation so that they learn it as well. And it rolls right into our lives today. This is why we show up every weekend. Do you know what we celebrate every Sunday morning? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is resurrection day. 52 times a year, we get to say, I belong to the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We remember our history with Jesus. We receive communion once a month. He said, do this to remember me. So the things, the patterns that we put inside of our lives actually comes from the way God wants us to remember him. Generation after generation after generation, you're gonna do these things to remember me. In the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses kind of gives his final sermon to the nation of Israel, early in that book, this is part of what he says. It might actually be familiar to some of you. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 and 2. Now, this is the commandment. 
the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. He's referring to what he's saying now and what the rest of the book says. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Generation after generation will remember me. And you're going to make sure that this happens. Here are the statutes. Here are the rules. Here's the pattern of life now that we live because we follow this God. So Moses says, what should I tell them if they ask for a name? And what God gives him is, is, is a, cosm- a cosmos-changing concept for Moses and Israel and for us. And the conversation continues. We're going to pick it up in verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter. So back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 16, God continues to say, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what, you have been do- what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. The elders will now listen to Moses' voice. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. God calls Moses, encourages him gives him his name, begins to talk about who he is, and then he gives away the rest of the book. (laughs) This is what's going to happen, and here's roughly how it's going to happen. You're going to make your way out, and I'm going to take you into the promised land. But it's interesting, some of the things that God tells Moses specifically. I need you to go to the elders, the leaders of the various tribes and families in in, in the people of Israel, and you need to tell them what we're going to do. And this time, they're going to listen to you. And tell them I have observed what is happening to them in Egypt. That word observed is, is an emotionally loaded word. I've paid careful attention. I've seen it all. I know what has happened, and I'm going to free you from this. So God reiterates his promise to bring them out of slavery and into the land that he had promised Abraham. So when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's not just history, that's covenant. 
That's the fulfillment of promise between God and his people. And they will listen to your voice. And the way that Exodus and Numbers unfolds, they will listen to his voice. It's going to be in a start and stop kind of fashion. But they are going to listen to him this time. And God calls himself in this passage something interesting. The God of the Hebrews. Many scholars believe that the term for Hebrews actually arises out of their experience of slavery in Egypt. So when God says the God of the Hebrews is here and this is what he is going to do, God is identifying with his people in their pain and slavery and loss. The great I am is also the God of those who are in slavery. So Moses, this is what you're going to tell the king of Egypt. Please let us go a three days journey that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So God gives Moses now the Cliff Notes version of what's going to happen through the rest of the book. We are told now that God will do it. And this is important for you and me as followers of Jesus Christ. God tells them, I will fulfill all of my promises. You will be led out of the land of Egypt and you will go into the promised land. But then what happens is that Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel have to go through the plagues and they have to go through those moments where they think it's gonna happen, but it doesn't happen. Pharaoh promises it's gonna happen, but then he pulls back that promise and we go through another plague. It takes a long time and it's hard to actually get to that point. Will Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel stick with the promise of God? Will they trust him enough to go through the process to do what God wants to do. It's very much the way these kinds of things work inside of our lives. The promises that God grants us in Scripture, the things that God reassures us of in our lives, we walk through our daily lives wondering, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? Do we trust the great I am enough to walk through our daily lives faithful to him, waiting for his hand to move in his time and in his wisdom. What Moses is going to tell Pharaoh is you need to let us go because we're going to go and we're going to worship our God. This is this dynamic in Exodus that we're becoming more familiar with now. It's freedom from slavery in Egypt and his freedom for the worship of God. That's why God frees his people. This is so that they can worship him, live lives that glorify him. God warns Moses, the king of Egypt is not going to let you go. He doesn't want to let you go. Now this becomes interesting to me. God lets Moses know now, he lets us know now, that Pharaoh is already inclined to refuse the request. Pharaoh's heart is already hardened against God. Now we're gonna get to these moments later on. And if I'm lucky, Jesus will come first, but we're gonna get there. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the text actually says several times. The way it says and when it says is is important. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but we learn long before we even get there that Pharaoh is already inclined against God. He's already inclined against Moses and the people of God. This is going to lead us to some really important conversations about the difference between Moses, who is in the wilderness tending sheep, 
and he sees this burning bush, and he actually turns aside. He's opened this, this conversation to hear what God has to say and actually eventually do what God wants him to do. And then you've got Pharaoh who refuses at every single turn. And it's going to take pain, and it's going to take time to actually break the will of Pharaoh. It's an incredible thing that happens. But then even God says the people of Egypt are going to show favor to the Hebrews. Israel will plunder the Egyptians. It's a great phrase. They're going to plunder the Egyptians. Every woman in your household is going to ask their neighbor, give me all of the best stuff that you have. And their Egyptian neighbors are going to say, you got it. Take everything that we have that's of any value, wear it, put it in your carts, drape it over your children, and get out of here. Now, you've got to ask yourself the question, what do a bunch of people who are going to walk into the desert for they don't know how long, why do they need gold and silver and fine linen? There's an answer to that question. And the answer to that question is the second half of the book. So we're going to get there. You have to, you have to keep coming back. But they will plunder the Egyptians. Egyptians. Friends, because of the powerful hand of God, his people will go from slavery to being people who are free, utterly and absolutely free to glorify him. We go from slavery to people who are free to worship our God. They lacked the power to do this. Moses, with whatever connections he has left in Pharaoh's household, does not have the influence to make any of them free. All of this happens only because of the hand of the great I am. He is the only one who can free his people. He's the only one. He is the sovereign, self-existent God of past, present, and future, and he is the God of all power, and his name is more powerful than any other name that stands in his way. That's who will do this. So this God of all power and knowledge will do this. In addition to that, he is the God of all love and care for his people. Remember, we've read this a couple times already. He hears, he remembers, he knows, and he will act on behalf of his people. So he will free his people to do the greatest thing that they could possibly do with their lives, follow their authentic selves. The greatest thing they can possibly do with their lives is to worship God, to glorify God. Now every step they take is intended to be taken to glorify their God. This is what God frees us for. The Apostle Paul uses the language and the image of the Exodus actually quite often, but he uses it in this very context to speak of our freedom from sin. We're freed from sin, and we're freed to the worship and the glory of God. Part of that story happens in Romans chapter 6, verses 5, 6, and 7. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died, died with Christ, has been set free from sin. Story of salvation is often put in the language of Exodus. Slavery to our sin, now freedom for our righteousness in Jesus Christ. So Paul goes on in the rest of Romans chapter six to say things like, so do not return to your slavery. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't walk back into that life of sin because all it is is slavery. Those are all the wrong gods. Those are all the wrong ways of seeing life. It is all dysfunction, and it is destruction, and it is slavery. When what you have available to you with the great I am is life and freedom and glory. So Paul says, don't go back to your sin. We have this freedom now, and it's the way in which that we ought to live. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, the apostle Paul very simply says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back. God has given you something brand new. So friends, I wanna make sure that we hear this again before we go this morning. If you are a child of God, you are a child of the great I am. This is who you belong to. This is who has called you. This is who has saved you. You don't belong to a God who has power over a couple of things. You belong to the great I am over all creation and time. So the name of the Lord is the name that carries more weight and power and righteousness and glory and freedom and forgiveness and holiness than any other name. Pharaoh's name cannot cross time and space and control nature. It can't. God will prove that to us through the plagues of Egypt. No pagan god worshipped by the Canaanites can compete with this god. So we will enter the promised land, conquer it, and it will become the land that God gives his people. We move further in history in the in the face of every Roman god, in the face of every Caesar who claims to be deity himself, the early Christians would proclaim Jesus is Lord, often to their own peril. But this is the name above every name, and this is the name that I belong to. I don't belong to Caesar. I don't belong to any Roman god. I belong to Jesus Christ. And we keep pushing that thought further in time. Friends, there is absolutely no modern scheme, no matter how much money and power is thrown at it, no matter how much technology is thrown at it, that can claim to be the self-existent controller of all of the universe. None of it. His is the name that is above every name. I would encourage you this week, even in the time that you spend in Scripture and in your own study, Pay attention to this concept, even just this phrase through Scripture, both Old and New Testament, the name of the Lord. 
The way the prophets reflect on it, the way the Psalms reflect on it, the way the New Testament writers speak about the name of Jesus Christ that is above every single name. This is who we belong to. This has become our identity. We think very quickly of Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord, the great I am, is a tower above all else. You run to it and you are safe. We read part of this passage during worship this morning, Psalm 96, the first six verses. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. You see, the psalmist is expanding on the notion of blessing the name of the Lord. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And on and on it goes. You can worship anything else you want to. I'm here to tell you it's worthless. But there is a God who's made all things. And there is a God who is our salvation. Something beautiful happens in the New Testament when we start reading about the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus takes this name upon himself. The Gospel of John, the last book that we went through, is especially sensitive to this. Seven times in the Gospel, Jesus says, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and on and on it goes. And Jesus keeps saying, this is who you're talking to. This is who you are walking with now. This is who will be crucified and raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. I am. And there's this moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus just sort of peels back that curtain of glory just enough to literally knock a bunch of soldiers off their feet. In John 18, verses 4 through 6, as they have come to arrest him, they think they've come <laughs> in their power and might Jesus reminds all of them, this is who you're dealing with. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, why? He is I am, that's why. Came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. In the Greek, it's literally I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They had to get back up, regather themselves, play it cool, and arrest him. But he's showing them, you have no power over me unless I give it to you. Because the name of the Lord is above every other name. I was tempted to read the entire chapter to you, but we'll read just a couple of verses. At the end of it all, in the book of Revelation, this becomes the cry, the hearts of God's people. 
Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. You are the reward that God has. I'm bringing my people with me. To repay each one for what he has done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Let's pray. Thank <laughs> you.